Thank you all for being here today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Okay, get this on your phones, get it in your Bibles. We're going to have a time of scripture reading today, and we're going to read from verses 42 through 50. So Mark chapter 9, verses 42 through 50. Um, this is an interesting portion of scripture, to say the least. It is full of graphic terminology. It is full of um, severe warning. It is a hell, fire, and brimstone passage. So if you came here today to get your ears tickled, I'm sorry. All right? Thank you, Pastor Hess, for giving me this passage. Um, it's a tough one. But we're going to read it and see what God has for us. And um, <laughs> those of you who like to make fun of me for being a hellfire and brimstone preacher, this is, this is right up your alley, okay? Um, Wow, here we go. This is Jesus talking to his disciples, all right? Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. Welcome to Southern Hills. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. I'm kind of having fun reading this, actually. The, the, I'm sorry. Verse 49. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. So that's our passage. You might be surprised to find out that we're calling today's message True Greatness. You're like, how in the world did you come up with that title from that passage? Well, let me just ask, first of all, how many of you desire to be great? I hope all of you, like, right? I mean, I know you're like, I don't know if I should answer that, right? Uh, I hope all of you desire to be great because that's, that's a desire, I think, being, that's part of being made in the image of God, whose very being, whose very presence is great. So I hope you all desire to be great, but what is greatness? And I imagine if I were to ask all of you, you know, what is true greatness to you? What does that mean if we go outside these walls and just ask people out there, what is true greatness? Somewhere in the answer, the words achievements and accomplishments are going to make its way into the answer, right? I mean, uh, probably one of the most favorite acronyms or most famous acronyms of our time right now is the GOAT. What does the GOAT stand for? Greatest of all time, right? So this coach is the GOAT, or this player is the greatest of all time. This entertainer, actor, actress is the greatest of all time. Why? Because look what they've achieved. Look at what they've accomplished. Look at how many championships they've won. Look how many awards they've won. They've achieved and accomplished so much, so they're the GOAT. Now, before I rip that, uh, let me say that we need to recognize achievements and accomplishes. There, there's nothing wrong with that. We need to note those things, recognize that, celebrate that. Those are, those are good things. But what I want to say is, is 
if achievements and accomplishments are really a part of your answer for true greatness, then you're probably a pretty miserable person. You're probably not fulfilled at all. And I'm just speaking from my own life because in my own life, achievements and accomplishments have made its way into the answer of what is greatness. And where does that leave me? I need to do more. Look around me. Look at the people of my age that have done so much more than I have. I, I fall short. I'm such a disappointment. I, I should be further along. You know, it just, it just leaves you unfulfilled and, and unsatisfied. What if I told you that achievements and accomplishments have very, very little to do with true greatness. And that every single one of you in this room today can be truly great. And the idea of this, past, of this message and this title today actually comes from the context of this message. Because the context is that Jesus is making his way to the cross. He's making his way to Jerusalem. He's got his disciples with him. And he's training them. He's preparing them for what lies ahead. And he's trying to teach them things, right? But it's, obviously that the, it's obvious that the disciples are not ready for what lies ahead because guess what they're arguing about in verse 34? Which one of us is the greatest? That's what they're arguing about in Mark 9, verse 34. Which one of us is the greatest? And in verse 35 of this chapter, Jesus says, Hey, you want to be great? Be last. Be servant of all. And then right before that passage we just read, I mean, right before it in verses 38 through 31, I mean, 38 through 41, the disciples, you know what they do to a believer in Christ? There's a guy who is casting out demons in the name of Jesus. This adult believes in the name of Jesus. He's casting out demons. You know what the disciples do to this guy? They stop him. They exclude him. You're not one of us. And Jesus looks at them and says, what are you doing? Whoever's not against us is for us. Why in the world would you stop and exclude someone that believes in me? Verse 42 now, what we just read. And so Jesus goes on to say, and we read it, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble. Let me stop right there. One of these little ones does not mean children. When you read this in the Greek, the Greek word is not the word for children. It just means anyone considered unimportant, someone pushed to the side, someone weak, fragile, someone marginalized, someone with not much social status or influence, which in ancient culture could mean children, but it could also mean adults. And so Jesus makes sure that we don't limit this just to children. He says, those who believe in me. Guess what the disciples just did? stopped and excluded someone who believed in Jesus. Do you think that when the disciples excluded that person that believes in Jesus, do you think that could have caused him to stumble? Do you think their pride and their smugness with that believer could have caused him to stumble? You better believe it. And Jesus says, hey, those who believe in me, you, you, you exclude like that and you stop and you treat them that bad? I got a severe warning for you. What Jesus is teaching is about true greatness to his disciples. And a person that's truly great is a person who refuses to look down on people. True greatness is a person who doesn't stop and exclude someone or push them to the side or judge them to be unimportant, insignificant, you know, low status. You're at the bottom. You're not one of us. 
a truly great person, someone who refuses to look down on people and says, hey, I want to welcome you in. I want to engage with you. I want to, I want to share with you. I want, to, I want to talk to you. I want to welcome you in. I tell you what, a great way I could, I could cause another believer to stumble is with my pride, my selfishness, my smugness, and go, yeah, you're not one of us. You know, you're, you're at the bottom kind of thing. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you brought me to the center of your life, then you're very open to engage. You're very open to the weak, the fragile. You're very open to the marginalized. You're very open to people that have, don't have much influence and status and stuff like that. You do not look down on them. That's a truly great person. And Jesus has that severe warning, doesn't it? He says it would be better if you just had a millstone hung around your neck and be cast into the sea, which means that if you cause another believer to stumble, that, you know what, <laughs> it would be better for you just to die a horrible death. A large millstone hung around your neck, no thank you, right? Because we're, we're dealing with an agricultural culture in Israel, and what was a millstone? It was this large stone. They would tie it to an ox. The ox would pull the stone over grain. It would crush the grain. They would produce flour. An ox could handle it, but not a human neck, right? And so <laughs> I don't want that. I mean, my, my neck can barely hold my own head. I mean, it starts painting me. I'm just like sitting around long periods of time and my neck starts painting me. A large millstone hung around it. That's pain. Be cast into the sea, that's death. Father, I, I, I want to die in my sleep. I don't want to die drowning. You know, I don't want to die like that. That is just an awful way. What this shows us, even though it's harsh, what this shows us is our Father's concern, Heavenly Father's concern for our witness and for the people around us, especially people around us who are weak and fragile or, you know, feel like they're at the bottom, he loves them. And so what can help us heed this warning that Jesus gives us? What can help us heed this warning? I think two things. Number one, do you see this life as a gift? Like, whatever talent you have, whatever influence you have, whatever power you have, whatever position you have, do you see it as a gift? Because it's only by God's grace that you have those things. It is a gift from God. And I think about the disciples who needed to hear that message that, hey, this is a gift. It's only by God's grace. Why do you think Jesus included the 12? Why do you think Jesus chose the 12 disciples? Did Jesus walk around and go, hum, you 12 are the most accomplished, most achieved, most talented, gifted people. I want you to part, be a part of my 12. Is that what happened? No, it was by God's grace they were included. It was a gift to them. And why, when they were arguing about which one is the greatest, how come Jesus didn't rank them? Okay, let's rank you. Okay, John, you're number one because I'm going to trust my mother into your hands when I die on the cross. Number 12, you're Judas because you're going to betray me someday. Peter, you're number two because I'm going to build my church upon you. Number 11, you're Thomas because you doubt too much. Number three, James, you're my brother. Number 10, you're Matthew because of your past, stealing from the Jews. How come Jesus didn't rank them? Because they're all zeros. They're not rankable. They're like the Arkansas Razorbacks in football. <laughs> Sorry, a little frustration came out there. Right. Every week I get the power rankings in the SEC, and Arkansas is at the bottom, right? Yeah, we're terrible. 
We don't deserve ranking. The disciples didn't deserve it. They weren't worthy of, their, of them being included. We don't produce our own greatness. Are you kidding me? And a truly great person knows that this is a gift. And it humbles you. It makes you gracious. And therefore, because you're humbled and you have gratitude, you refuse to look down on others. And you welcome them in. You see this life as a gift. Number two that can help us heed this warning, there is something to be said scripturally that how you treat a believer is how you treat Christ. Did you know that? How you treat a believer is how you treat Christ. And I give you examples of that, but probably the primary one that you would all know is, that, is uh, the Apostle Paul. He's persecuting Christians. He gets knocked off his high horse. What happens? Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You're like, I'm not persecuting Christians. And Jesus says, no, I take this personal. You, you're mistreating Christians, you're mistreating me. Why are you persecuting me? How you treat a believer is how you treat Christ. And on the flip side, if you're someone here going, well, this believer mistreated me and I wish a large millstone would be hung around their neck and they'd be cast into the sea. That makes you ungrate. You know that, right? You figure out what, you learn what forgiveness means and you fight for relationship. Never forget, this life is a gift. Never forget a truly great person is this person who refuses to look down on people but welcomes, welcomes the little ones in. Then Jesus goes from us causing people to stumble to we causing ourselves to stumble. Let's look at that again, verses 43 through 48. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. I think the first thing when I look at verses 43 through 48 is that I see the three body parts, right? If your hand, foot, your eye. It's like Jesus saying, you know, you know whatever you do would be your hands. Wherever, you're, wherever you go, that would be your feet. Whatever you lust after and desire in your life, that would be your eyes. If, there's, if it's causing you to stumble, if there's some serious issues there, you need to be aware of that and take action. And the language is strong, isn't it? It's not like cut back, it's cut out, pluck out, get rid of. The language is very, very strong and harsh. We can never say that Jesus is light on sin. That would be false. Jesus is not light on sin. So what can we learn from this? Some practical, encouraging help from, from what Jesus just said there. I think, first of all, I'm encouraged that Jesus actually invites us to take action. You pluck out. You, you cut out. Talking to me too. You take action. Second thing I, I, I find encouraging about this passage is that we know Jesus is talking something spiritual, not physical, right? Because in the Old Testament law, it was against the law to disfigure your body. So obviously Jesus came to fulfill the law, to obey it perfectly. This is not calling for literal physical mutilation. By the way, we would all be walking around. We wouldn't be walking around. We'd all have one foot, one arm, and one eye, wouldn't we, if we took this literal? We know the real issue is in the heart. So it's not talking about the physical. It's talking something spiritual. So what is Jesus talking about? Well, you know, if I really dealt this severely with my sin, let's say I cut off a hand because it's, you know, what I'm doing is wrong. I cut off a hand. Um, you would notice that, wouldn't you? 
you would see the change. Because I'm someone that's always doing this with my hands, preaching. Like, Josh is only using one hand now. You would notice it. You would see it. Those around me would notice it and see it especially. What Jesus is actually talking about here is repentance. What is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind about a behavior. And I show it by making a 180-degree turn. I show it. I go in a different direction. And the people around me see the change. When someone is talking about repentance, there's always got to be the word fruit with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Fruit is something that you show. It's seen. It's enjoyed by others. Bear fruit with keeping in repentance. You show it. You change. You show it by changing direction. The people around you see it. And Jesus, in the context of teaching the disciples about true greatness, as he's about to go to the cross, he is teaching his disciples, you know what? A truly great person is a repenter. A truly great person is someone who takes action on things that are causing themselves to stumble and other people to stumble. They take action. And by action, I mean confessing, right, admitting, like, what I'm doing is wrong. My hands, where my feet are leading me is wrong. i got to do something about it. What my eyes desire and I'm lusting after, it's wrong. i got to bring this to light. i got to go in a different direction. i got to get help. i got to get counseling. i got to go to recovery meetings. i got to go get accountability. i got to get plugged into community. I don't know, but I'm going to go in a different direction, take action. That's repentance. You show it by going in a different direction. The people around you see it. That's a truly great person. A truly great person is not someone who hides things, blames things, minimizes things, excuses things, doesn't deal with their sins. That's an ungrate person, a great person, someone who repents. Now, I don't even know if I need to say this. You probably have already figured this out, but there's a very anti-repentant message going on in our time right now. In fact, it's even, it's, this disgusts me, but it's even in the church in general. I don't know, I've been to a few conferences actually, and Christians are telling other Christians, don't use the word repent in church. It's too churchy. You're going to turn people off. Don't use the word repent. Wow. Sad. And here's the message going around in our time about change and repentance. Here's the message. Well, of course, the real issue is on the inside. It's in the heart. Everybody knows that. So look on the inside to find out why you do what you do, why you go where you go, why you lust after what you lust after, and then just accept that's who you are and be true to yourself. That's the message going. It's in every commencement address. It's all over the world. It's a very anti-repentant, anti-change message going on. And I'm going to tell you what, that's going to cause you to stumble, and that's going to cause the people around you to stumble if you buy into that lie. We can never, ever forget that the first commandment, and I talk about the greatest commandment or the great commission or anything like that, but Christ's first commandment when he came to this earth, you know what it was? Repent. 
for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his, for how he started his ministry. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. And he's repeating it again here in Mark chapter 9. What does repentance and the kingdom of God have to do with each other? I'm going to tell you everything. You see, the Old Testament prophets, you know what they did? They, they talked about, the, they prophesied that the kingdom of God is coming and that, the, that there's going to be a descendant of David that's going to come and usher in that kingdom, right? And so Jesus comes and he's baptized and he starts his ministry. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. In other words, I'm not descendant of David. I'm the Messiah who's come to usher in the kingdom of God. And it caused great controversy. Why? Because everybody thought the Messiah, the one that's going to usher in the kingdom of God, he would bring a sword and pierce the enemies. He would overthrow Rome. He would usher in universal peace. Jesus comes and says, I'm the Messiah. I'm not the descendant of David. You know why? Everybody's confused because he's a different kind of Messiah. This Messiah, you know what he did? Instead of bringing a sword to pierce his enemies, he came to be pierced by his enemies on the cross. Instead of overthrowing Rome, he came to overthrow our hearts. Instead of ushering in universal peace, which is coming on the second coming, but the first coming, he came to usher in peace in our hearts. He died on the cross. He was buried in the tomb. He rose from the dead. He overcame sin and death. And by the way, when we put our faith in him, it is through him that we are reconciled to God and we have peace with God. He came to usher in peace in our hearts. Where repentance begins is making Jesus the king of your heart. And the kingdom of God is as near to anyone who says, Jesus, you are the king of my heart. And I turn from looking in here for answers and accepting who I am. And I'm going to make a turn and I'm going to look for you for answers and accept who you are. That's repentance. A truly great person is a repenter. But we can't discount that Jesus not only brought up the kingdom of God, he brought up hell, didn't he? Hell is a reality about which we all are warned. In fact, the Christian doctrine of hell comes more from Jesus than anybody else in Scripture. He taught more about hell than anybody else. And the word hell in this, in this passage is the word Gehenna. It's derived from this valley south of Jerusalem where horrible things happened in the Old Testament in that valley. I hate to say this, and I'm sorry for the children here. I'm just going to say it. But so King Ahaz and King Manasseh, in the Old they were stumbling blocks to their people, right? They led their people right into sin. And one of the things they did in the valley of Gehenna, is that they sacrificed children to this false god named Molech. That's, it was horrible. King Josiah comes, and he's appalled by the whole thing. He brings reformation and revival. What does he do? He desecrates the place. He burns it. He put, makes it a garbage sheet, and they're burning fire in there, and, and they, keep, you know, they keep the garbage from overflowing. They just keep dumping garbage in there, and they keep the fire going. There's carcasses in there, and worms are eating it. And so it's just a, it's just a terrible place. It became a Jewish metaphor for the, the place of final judgment, of, uh, uh, final punishment. And Jesus is teaching, no, hell is a, is a real place. Hell is a real place. 
scriptures not only teach that believers are going to be resurrected, but you know what? Non-believers are going to be resurrected too. Did you know that? And they're going to face God on why they refuse to make Jesus king of their heart. And there is a place of final punishment to hell. It's an awful place. It is far better to repent than enter that place. I'm just trying to speak truth, you know. And I think one of the things Jesus is teaching right here is that true greatness is when you care about someone else's eternity. A truly great person is someone who cares about someone else's eternity. Let me tell you something. As I studied this passage and, you know, looked at the kingdom of God and looked at hell and looked at all this, I was rocked. I was like, you know what, I, I've been really so wrapped up in the here and now. I've been so task-oriented, you know, and, 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 and the harvest really is plentiful. You know, going to your kids' games and, you know, in your neighborhood and, you know, your work, co-workers, you know, wherever you go, the harvest is plentiful. I should be caring about other people's eternity because there's a kingdom of God and there is hell. There is, this is not all there is. And I need to be doing whatever I can to engage, to show the love of Christ. Not look down on people, but show the love of Christ. And do what I can to say, hey, God wants a relationship with you. He, he loves you. He wants a relationship with you and wants you to be in that relationship. He wants you to know him who knows you so, so intimately and yet loves you. Do you care about other people's eternity? Or are you dismissive because of what they do? hands, or where they go, their feet, or what they lust after and desire, their eyes. You kind of dismiss them or nah, nah, you're, you're, you're whatever, you know. I hope you're not indifferent. I hope you're not so wrapped up in the here and now like I've been, and you actually do care about people's eternity because that's a truly great person. And then Jesus says in verse 49, he said this, he says, everyone will be salted with fire. It's the only time this phrase is located in Scripture, and it had to mean so much to Mark and to Peter who helped Mark write this, because what it means, I mean, the disciples, they're about to face the fire. They really are. Jesus is going to go to the cross. The church is going to be birthed. They're going to face persecution and trials and all this stuff, but salted with fire. You know what salt is? That's a preservative. Jesus is teaching, hey, no matter what you face, no matter the hard times, no matter the difficulties, the trials, whatever, I will preserve you. Keep persevering in your relationship with God. Keep making this life about knowing him more and more. He perseveres with you and he will preserve you. Because he loves you. It had to mean so much to the disciples to hear that, that they'll be preserved through the fire. Verse 50, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. And Jesus had to say that, right, because they're arguing about which one of us is the greatest. And there's no way you can be at peace with one another if you're arguing about who's the greatest. So, of course, he said this. Salt is a very stable compound. Salt doesn't lose its saltiness, by the way, just, just sitting around. It's very stable. In fact, the only way it can be, uh, that sodium chloride can be removed or affected is if it's exposed to condensation or rainwater, so if it's diluted. And I think Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, be stable. Have salt among yourselves. Be at peace with each other. Don't be deluded with pride. Don't be deluded with the selfishness and this fear and all this stuff. Like, which one of us is the greatest? Don't be deluded with that. 
serve one another, love each other. Don't be a stumbling block of each other because that's what the world needs to see from us. So, what is true greatness? Well, true greatness is that person who refuses to look down on others. They know that this life is a gift. They know that whatever talents and successes, whatever influence, whatever power they have, they didn't produce it, it is a gift from God. And therefore, because of the humility and gratitude, you're welcoming to the little ones, if you will. That's a truly great person, that person who refuses to look down at people. I think of modern-day professions like nurses. What do they do? They give the same quality of care no matter who the, who the patient is. I think of teachers. They give the same quality of education no matter who... Who, who the student is. I think about veterans who fight for all of America, no matter who they are, or where they're from. That's what we got to learn from in the spiritual realm. We go out and we show the love of God no matter who they are. That's a truly great person. A true great person is a repenter. They have made this turn from looking inside for answers and accepting who they are to looking for him for answers and accepting who he is. They have made Jesus king over their hearts and they bring to light any issue. They take action. They bring to light any issue that's causing them to stumble or their family to stumble or someone in their life to stumble. A true great person is repentant. I want to thank anyone in here who has been courageous enough to repent, who is courageous enough to take action on your issues. Thank you. You're a, there's so many repenters in here. Thank you for your courage. And a true great person is someone who cares about someone else's eternity. You know that this life is not all there is. And you engage with people and you do what you can to show the love of Christ. You want to share the gospel. You, you invite people to church because you know you have your Father's heart. You don't want to see anyone perish but come to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That makes you great. So even though it's a tough passage... It prepares us for what lies ahead in our walk with Christ. And this invitation to follow Jesus Christ is an invitation to true greatness. Will you follow him into that path? Let's pray.